Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Alex Chi and Jake Elowitz. Alex and Jake help run product and engineering at Tribe Capital uh, as it intersects across the entire firm from co-investing to help, helping uh, support companies to uh, helping LPs. Alex, Jake, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much, Eric. Uh, really appreciate yeah. you having us on. So I, uh, I've been a big fan of Tribe Capital for a long time. I believe you've just celebrated your two-year uh, birthday, so congratulations. And we've had um, you know, some of the partners on the show. And so excited to go deeper on sort of how you know, product engineering can really innovate within venture capital. How would uh, you describe what is the superpower that, that Tribe Capital has or, or what sort of makes it sort of distinctly unique? Uh, and then I want to get to how, how you two contribute to that. Yeah, I actually think there's a pretty interesting way to kick this off. Uh, and that is actually to ask you a question, Eric. Uh, you know, uh, what, what do you think everybody thinks we do? And I'll give you a hint, right? Like we, we've done two podcasts on, uh, on your segment here. Uh, they were called data, uh, using data in venture capital uh, and data informed investing. Yeah, so I, I would think that uh, you would, you know, leverage better data sources to either source companies, evaluate companies, uh, and or uh, support companies in ways that uh, other firms uh, perhaps do it more in a craftsman-like way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, as you said, we've, we had our two-year birthday actually just at the end of last month. Uh, and, you know, through that time, we've sort of iterated on how we describe what we do because it's somewhat amorphous uh, when you're first getting into it, just like any new startup. Uh, but uh, one of the questions that I get quite a bit, in fact, I've gotten this quite a few times in the last few weeks, is how do I make my own institution more data oriented? Right? I get this from sort of hedge funds that are trying to enter into the private markets. I get this from family offices who are realizing they're overexposed to sort of the family businesses who want to enter into venture. Uh, and uh, ultimately, what we end up telling them, and this is funny given the, the title of some of these other podcasts, uh, is it's, you're, you're thinking about the wrong question. It's not about necessarily being data-oriented. Now, I think, uh, you know, this is something that's easy to wrap your head around, and it's easy to wrap your head around because the truth is everybody uses data in venture, right? And everybody uses it across sourcing, evaluation, managing companies. And so really, the, the statement ends up being quite empty, and I think it's not a great way to describe uh, what we do. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what, what Jake and I primarily do is think about what that actual edge is internally. And I think if you look across sort of the history, uh, I, I guess, of all corporations, right, um, what you end up seeing uh, is we believe, you know, the largest ones are the ones uh, that align in a lot of ways with the, the investment philosophy that we have now, right, which is, you know, they're the companies that have been able to find product market fit early on in their life cycles in such a way that each unit of that fit ends up uh, resulting in sort of this wide universe of possibilities on top. And the largest of these are the ones where entire ecosystems are built on that initial product market fit. So inevitably what we end up doing at Tribe, uh, and I think what's an interesting topic for today, is even for those guys who say, hey, I wanna be more data oriented, really the right question to ask is, 
you know, there are these new shiny toys out here, beta, et cetera. But has sufficient time elapsed in our industry or sector uh, such that we should rethink the way our organizations run all the way through the diligence and the way in which we think about companies uh, and use a product-oriented mindset, an engineering-oriented mindset to essentially re-engineer the entire thing from the ground up. And so, you know, Jake, myself, the rest of the team, that's what we end up spending a fair amount of time doing. Uh, and it's actually a part of our investment thesis when it comes to investing in companies, because it's, we believe that brings out the most multiplicative compounding effects. Yeah, I think uh, just kind of adding a little color to that is, and this is a theme that's happened not just in venture, it's kind of across many industries, where people are starting to utilize data, right? People say, oh, I have so much data now, and I have so many things I can do with that data, I must do something. And the trap there is that the data itself and the analysis is not an outcome. It has to start with kind of what are the problems you're trying to solve? And then how can you, you know, back from there? I think data is like two or three steps, like, okay, what are we going to do with data away from that? And I think, um, you know, the iteration process about discovering what you should do is very, very important. I think that's something that uh, we spent a lot of time on uh, figuring out how we want to do that at Tribe. And why don't you walk us through sort of how it's evolved o- over time a bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, I, actually, I met Jake uh, over at Social Capital, you know, run by this gentleman named Chamanth Palayaptia, early Facebook exec. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason, uh, I'll let Jake speak for himself, but part of the reason why I joined, and I was first product hired there, uh, was uh, the idea of merging product engineering and venture seemed fairly novel at the time. Uh, and frankly, like the opportunity I was presented was, hey, why not try and figure this out, right? And, uh, you know, having been on the other side of the table of having founded companies and such, I knew there were certain things that I had struggled with, uh, specifically sort of the, uh, you know, I think investors have historically done a great job of connecting into you, uh, you into like a strategic network of helping you understand insights within your data that you wouldn't otherwise uh, understand, helping you connect the dots. But if you look back in the last 10 years, uh, you know, a lot of that exploration has been based on whatever information you give your investors. Uh, and uh, that, that's a hard process when you're living through what I would describe as the struggle as an entrepreneur. Uh, and so coming on in, uh, I realized, hey, you know, this is potentially a way for us to sort of re-examine some of those challenges and rethink the way in which uh, we uh, interface with companies, provide value to them, et cetera. Now, I'll be frank, like when I came in, uh, we didn't know what we were going to focus on. In fact, we had the exact same answer that you had in the beginning, which was, hey, can we use data in the same way we did as operators to help us source companies, manage companies, uh, evaluate companies, essentially that whole life cycle. Uh, I just distinctly remembering, distinctly remember uh, thinking to myself, my God, I'm, I'm one product guy here. Uh, there's a huge amount of surface area here. I'm not even talking about the operations portion of running a firm. Uh, and thinking when when Jake, you know, started talking to us, thinking, wow, like Jake has this uncanny ability to deconstruct the space and start to think about the interdependencies, and he might be able to help us take a product-based approach to thinking through this. That is, figuring out what the right focus is here uh, to leverage the least amount of energy to build the largest outcome. Uh, you know, we actually ended up trying a lot of those different things. In fact, when we have conversations with people externally, they often think that we uh, focus the majority of our data, uh, our data work on sourcing. 
and and uh, I think this is actually a great example of why you need to rethink the entire stack from the ground up if you really want to make a material change. And that is, there are reasons why people think of sourcing and venture and management of companies uh, when they think about data. And the reason is, in a lot of cases, uh, what you have is a highly successful firm that's lasted for the last 10, 20 years. They have significant momentum in the way in which they operate, right? It's usually around network or the way in which their investment committee and that core evaluation works. And when you pull in engineers who haven't had access to this type of environment, what they inevitably end up doing uh, is thinking, hey, what are the easiest interfaces into this moving mass, right? How can I be the connective tissue in? Uh, and the answer uh, ends up being the easiest points of entry are at the beginning of the process and at the end of the process. Uh, and, and we've seen this with some of the other earlier attempts, including ourselves, right? Where we will put in the top of funnel uh, so that the investment team could look at it. Um, we would tinker with sort of the evaluation part, but that was difficult given we had to mesh that with the existing investment community and how they worked. And then at the end, right, it was easier for that team to then pass back that work to us uh, and sort of manage the portfolio. I think you could see that in the way the firm was organized. And I think it was a great first shot, huge props to Tremont for designing that. Uh, and we were actually able to get quite far. But I would also say, you know, there were a fair number of uh, distractions, uh, and it was fairly difficult to find that one thing that we could focus on that would provide those compounding returns. And so, yeah, and I think you know, I think just kind of adding to that, um, these things definitely take time and, and iteration. And that first, you know, crack at social capital was really instrumental. Um, you know, it's hard. You know, we can only speculate speculate if we all remain there um, how we would have evolved everything. But we definitely learned a lot of what Alex is talking about, in particular. You know, there are people who uh, are basically incentivized on kind of the deal selection side, right? And then there's engineers. How are engineers incentivized? Uh, and then there's how do you? And, and then there's on the other side, data scientists and everything. And then how do you um, incentivize innovation from a product and and frameworks perspective with these new ideas versus you know a little outside of the box? Uh, to actually come into motion and make and have lots of progress on that front. I think that was one of our lessons too with social capital where uh, while there was, you know, this uh, growing uh, product and engineering team uh, and that, you know, in a way it was very, very innovative. One of the lessons was when you're, you're, when you're not on the line to make the call, it's very different when you're coming up with the framework, implementing the framework or building a system. And I think, you know, when we came together at Tribe Capital, that was one of the things that we took with us, which was what if we change the incentive structure so that, you know, the person who's designing the system and the person who's coming up with the framework out of left field has their neck on the line for that. I think that, you know, you end up with a bit of a different approach, a different framework, and you have a little more flexibility. And, uh, and that's kind of one of the things that I would say was kind of where we had iterated on uh, some of the learnings from social capital. Totally. Uh, let's get into the meat here. You talk about the, the atomic unit and the core product efforts that, that support it, like uh, eight ball and AllSpark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think like uh, uh, it's, it's important to start with uh, sort of what the core philosophy is around sort of product and focus. Right? I think, uh, and we actually, as I said earlier, you know, we use this in our own investment philosophy as well. Like when we see a company that has been able to build early stage product market fit in something that can evolve into many things, that's the most exciting. 
right? Versus sort of a company that is incredibly widespread, may have sort of mediocre product market fit across, can't really give rise to anything. And I think the problem is you're always constrained by resources, at least, especially in the earlier stages. And so how can you get the biggest bang for the buck? Uh, and our, our underwriting frameworks are based around this specifically, right? Like our uh, eight ball, as you describe it, that's our uh, mechanism for, uh, as I would describe it, viewing the current state of a company, a medical chart, so to say, uh, with uh, high precision and very quickly. Uh, we use that and then layer on top sort of these 10x, 100x frameworks that allow us to see whether or not that early product market fit sort of extends into other avenues, right? Other products, other uh, compounding effects on top of that uh, early effort. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, we, we essentially took that same framework and looked within ourselves to try and understand, hey, you know, historically we've focused on a lot of different things, sourcing, valuation, management. Is there a single thing we can focus on at the start of Tribe that will build the most compounding effects? It's not data because data is too broad, but, but what is that thing? And for us, the answer ended up being that eight ball. Uh, to me, it is, again, how do you get to ground truth about a company, its current state as well as its past, as fast as possible, uh, so that you can then layer in all these other theses on top or all of these other network effects. Uh, and and uh, you know, when I joined, that was sort of the loon shot that was given to me was, look, it, it seems inevitable that if there was a firm that given any company could immediately give you back that ground truth, cut through all the bias that's in there, both in terms of memos but also in terms of the materials the company uh, has to rush to give you, that would be invaluable. In fact, every single LP would ever would want that. Uh, everybody in the public and private markets would want that. Uh, all companies would value that because they can offset some of their engineering time to get ground truth and then get another perspective that's accurate. Uh, and uh, essentially, we took that insight and uh, we built the team around building that at this juncture, right? And uh, and essentially. Uh, starting to explore the adjacencies that come out of that. Jake runs the Avon and all sorts. So I'd love to pass it to him to talk a little bit more about what we've been doing there. Yeah, I think I think that's a good um, overview. One of the uh, things about the Avon, um, just because this is a thing that we're very familiar with, it's a, a data analysis based on raw product data that uh, we sh we share back with the entrepreneur. And you know, all these frameworks we we've published them and everything. So this, you know. They're relatively out there. Um, the thing that I think is really valuable there, it's not that we did a data analysis, not that we can do it quickly, accurately, and visualize it well. I think that one of the things that, you know, because a lot of entrepreneurs will already have their cohorts understood and have, you know, their customer concentration or their growth and all that. But when we bring the eight ball to an entrepreneur, we're also coming with the interpretation. You know, it's about the discussion. I think there's an analogy here when Alex used uh, the word clinical. Uh, you know, a doctor might have a ton of information about a patient, and then what they do to make it valuable is they figure out what matters so that the patient can make an informed decision. I think that's that's a lot of what we do in an April. As you can see, that's not actually data. Like data, yes, it helps us get there. It helps us get there quickly, uh, cut out biases and cut out and make it more objective and all that stuff. That's all great. But the real value is actually this other stuff. In terms of the product experience for an entrepreneur, is this easy, fast, did I learn something? 
are these people that I think I'd want to keep in touch with because they help me understand my product in a way that I might not have seen it, you know, on my own. And, you know, I know lots of VCs are out there and lots of VCs are doing all sorts of valuable things. This is kind of our, our approach. And, uh, and the way that we use um, this approach internally is how do we make this better for everybody? How do we make ourselves smarter around this framework and make it better and smarter over time? I think that's, that's a little more um, color there. Yeah, and, and I, I want to echo what, what Jake said here, right? And actually, the same thing holds for the people that we end up working with, uh, because essentially what happens is we we are enabled uh, to build that interpretation on top of uh, that ground truth. Uh, and in the same way, what we found uh, is by sharing that same interpretation out uh, when possible, uh, the other firms in the space that are innovative in other areas, whether it's again, like network, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, strategic capital from somewhere, uh, they are able to then multiply their efforts based on, I guess, this backbone, you could call it. Uh, and so I think, you know, we consider ourselves fortunate having worked through several years of not only focusing on this to realize, hey, this is, there are a lot of effects that come from focusing on this uh, and, uh, you know, being able to not only do that internally, but share that abroad as well. Totally. And so, you know, firms have tried to innovate on on sourcing, on, on, dil- on, on diligencing, on, on supporting. Would you say that you're having the most traction on sort of the intersection between supporting and then somewhat of diligencing? Or how would you say you sort of, you know, look look at all the, those those three things in terms of the way that, you know, data and products can really help in venture? I think um, I think for us we have you know th- this is a tricky question because you know it's one of these things how do you know where the impact is um, I think where we are making our where we've made our biggest bet historically it was on evaluation uh, the thing with evaluation though is uh, it's hard for us to say did we pick well right uh, it's hard for us to say how much innovation we had on evaluation actually flowed through our returns if actually it's in the support side. Uh, but that's kind of where I think we we started with a lot of this. Actually, a lot of this started with supporting, and it went back into evaluation, and then went back into supporting. So maybe I can just give a little history, and that might be helpful. Where uh, these frameworks originated from co-founder at Tribe Capital, Jonathan Sue, sitting in social capital portfolio companies, helping them understand their product traction, and that's where uh, the, the first learning was: Hey, this is really useful. Maybe we should do this before we invest in a company. But now we're finding um, uh, that uh, working with companies to help them at their inflection points, uh, working closely with the finance and product teams, just to helping them understand their traction at the most crucial times in their development is is actually turning out to be pretty important. Totally. L- let's talk about some of the other products that you that you have. Maybe talk a little bit about Loon Shots or, or First Look. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is actually, uh, First Look is a great example of what it means to deploy sort of a product uh, orientation to the way in which you think about building things. Uh, so, so for context, you know, first look uh, is our co-invest program in-house. Uh, in fact, I'd say we probably have two products, right? We have a fund, sort of earlier stage, uh, highly managed, and then we have a co-invest product that uh, frankly grew organically uh, out of our early stage uh, investing practice. And what we found was a lot of the, the same frameworks for early stage product market fit, i.e. the eight ball, as well as the frameworks on top of that, 
they ended up applying to later stage companies as well, right? It helped us reduce our loss ratios and such. And so we engineered uh, a new uh, format. And I'd say like co-invest vehicles are not a new thing. Uh, but what we ended up doing was also saying, hey, look, like, is there a way for us to rethink the way in which we structure these as well? So that there is further alignment and we get more of these compounding effects. And ultimately what, we, we've, uh, what we've built recently uh, is a way for us to align those vehicles uh, with our fund. Uh, and so how, how that works is these, these first look vehicles, you know, they, they invest deal by deal uh, into companies. Uh, often when we have partners slash we want to expose an opportunity that doesn't fit into the fund uh, to those partners, we think it's a great deal. It's a slightly different product. Uh, and we'll actually realign it into the fund uh, by essentially having the fund act as the GP uh, and get the carried interest from there and flow into that. And so in that way, you know, again, like the, the major point here is in the end, like there is a core focus uh, that we have that is sort of understanding these companies and extrapolating the 10x, 100x. Uh, and we're orienting all these products around trying to understand, hey, if we do these things, uh, how can we multiply the overall effect? And that program has been wildly successful. Uh, there are tertiary effects as well that come from running a program like this. Um, I personally run this program and a lot of times what I'm able to do uh, is iterate on our underwriting and the way in which we interface with various parties. Right, so going back to this not only being helpful for us, uh, what I've been able to do is talk to family offices, talk to high net worth individuals, understand the way in which their own investment thesis interfaces with a ground truth view into companies and over time develop a product out of that that allows us to generate that much more value right and so again the the question isn't like how do we use data for co-invest it ends up being how do we do everything in a deliberate manner that allows us to expand this as far as possible and so that's why i think that's an interesting case study uh, in how we build products internally why do you think other venture firms don't do this, or they sort of see it as more of a craft than, than a product. Or what's sort of deeply contrarian uh, here? What, how, how, do you, how do you guys see the world differently than, than most firms do? Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go ahead and say that nobody else does this. I think people are trying, and I think it's unclear, right? What I mean, we're in the early stages. I'd say we're in like the first or second inning uh, on this, and despite the fact that you know we've been working five, six years. Uh, and I think ultimately everybody ends up with a different sense for what that base thing that you should focus on is, right? I, I can count, you know, numerous firms that use data uh, for building these things. Uh, I think there are the obvious conclusions to jump through uh, about where data is most useful when it comes to venture, uh, you know, some of which we described earlier. But I think for the rest uh, of sort of the ecosystem, again, it goes back to that core challenge, which is, when you have an existing institution that's built great success, had great momentum, and you have a culture slash infrastructure that's there and sort of solidified to support that, how do you adjust that and shift, right? In fact, this is not unique to institutions. I'd say this is something that all companies face. Uh, it's, you know, how do you remain flexible and, and adjust? And I think when we think about product ideologies, a lot of times the products are the product of the team and infrastructure. Right? They just naturally arise around that. And there's a mapping between those two. And I think you can probably attribute a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the ecosystem, the way it operates to that fact uh, singularly. Yeah. I think, I think there's a thing here too, where um, I, it's all the things Alex is saying around when you have success and this is, 
you know, this is the classic innovator's dilemma. Why would you change? Your business is going to, you know, optimize around serving its existing customers in the same, you know, with the core products. You know, I think, I think that's kind of where uh, you starting from scratch um, and maybe changing, changing something uh, from a business model perspective is where you might in the long run end up with innovation. Another thing in VC is, um, is uh, when one venture capitalist finds wild success, it's kind of like a thing that now other VCs might see as a promising strategy. And it's not a bad idea because there's a lot of winners in the space. For example, with Andreessen's platform team, you know, that kicked off a whole wave of VCs that are working with their portfolio companies in new ways. And I think um, the reflexive nature of some of this uh, will, will make it kind of somebody coming out with a new, a new approach might just be less common. That's not to say that others aren't doing this. Plenty of people are trying new things. But I think that this might be one of the reasons why you might see uh, more of kind of that investor perspective. Well, why don't you give a little bit of the uh, landscape in terms of how you, how other firms uh, who, who are also very sort of product and data driven might, might see things a little bit differently. Like if you were to describe how Signal Fire looks at things or any other firm that you think is particularly cutting edge here, you probably agree on a lot, but where might there be a difference of, uh, of approach or strategy? If you were to sort of describe I think it. our I think our main I think our main difference if I if I had to peg it onto one thing I don't think it's like our engineering ability blah 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 I think it's the fact that you know you have product and engineering making investment decisions as you know like so you know basically on in the room having having those conversations that's something that is really interesting at Tribe Capital is I can spend sometime, you know, maybe a week, I'm off figuring out how to, you know, build our AllSpark system smarter so that we can do things better. And then I can ask somebody and require them to like test it out for me. And then we can make that iteration. Uh, you know, there's this, there's this level of um, fluidity across investing product and engineering that we have just in kind of the way we're structured. Yeah. And to give some, give some context, you know, if you look, we're about 13 people, uh, half data science, quarter product, uh, and to you know, give a give a true example of what Jake's talking about. You know, we Jake and I recently sort of co-led Carter's Series F, uh, you know, with Lightspeed. And as we were diligencing that, uh, essentially Jake was iterating on the modules necessary to diligence that company as we diligenced it and as questions came. Uh, and so you can imagine, you know, the the iteration cycles are much shorter when you have both the investor and the engineer as, as one single entity. Uh, and that's just simply not possible elsewhere. And when you don't have that frequency of iteration, the value that you can get from iterating on that part diminishes. Uh, and this is why, again, going to my earlier point, uh, I think you see this bias towards working about, uh, you know, working on sourcing and other things because there are contained sort of autonomous units that you can work through, that engineering teams can work through without interfering with the core function uh, of a venture firm, which often lies in sort of diligence, deal-making, that sort of thing. One other aspect here is that the, the fact that VC is overall, I, I would argue, relatively nascent um, and kind of the application of, of you know, product engineering and iteration is, uh, is pretty early, that the like vertically integrated investor, if you will, is actually pretty important to make progress on a new framework, for example. 
And I, I think the analogy here is uh, if you were to look at a technology company, you know, this, this kind of organizational structure, you know, product engineers, excuse me, product managers and engineers kind of splitting it up. And then, you know, you can go on from there makes a lot of sense because, you know, people know how to, you know, do controlled experiments and A-B testing and, uh, you know, and all such, and all this uh, such things that, you know, it makes sense to break it up and specialize and then horizontally integrate. But uh, I think we're in a place right now, and I think VC overall is in a place where you need somebody to be like entirely immersed beginning to end to really kind of see what matters and where to spend time. Yeah, totally. I want to zoom out, zoom out a bit, you know, so over the years of social capital, I've, I've heard a number of different terms thrown out, you know, obviously capital as a service was one product. I think I heard like uh, Anvil or Antler or, or either a number of these sort of internal products that, that were created, some of which you, you've sort of continued at, at Tribe. I'm, I'm curious for, for one or a few that, that didn't necessarily work. You don't need to give the specifics necessarily of the name or the, the, the project, but more just like high level, you thought that this would give an advantage in venture and, and for whatever reason it did or hasn't yet. Yeah, you know, I actually think that all those, you hit the nail on the head with the last statement, it hasn't yet. I actually think all these things are bound to happen at some point. I don't know how long it'll take, whether it's sourcing or I guess capital as a service, as you said it, which was an automated way to provide a green light, red light on an investment, sort of at the earlier stages, um, and remove the bias from it. I think, I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, in fact, I think one day it'll likely exist. In fact, we, you know, talked to many partners sort of on the debt. Uh, on, the, on the debt side of things, uh, about how we might utilize frameworks like the A-Ball to better underwrite opportunities in automatic fashion. But uh, I think the challenge there was, again, uh, nascent team. Uh, we needed to put risk capital and sort of risk effort play in order to gauge where there is product market fit. Uh, and we were very much in the zero to, not even zero to one, the zero to 0.5. Right, and exploring what might or what might not work. Uh, and the underlying issue ended up being we, we just had to grind through a lot of the various ways in which we did every single part of that stack. One example was uh, it was incredibly challenging to ingest data from company while still maintaining trust. Uh, obviously, we have a secret sauce for doing that today. Um, but back then, this was non-trivial. Right? Um, an- another example uh, is we were attempting to build a green light, red light model and do the feature engineering around our models, uh, but we didn't have the data quality necessary to support those, right? going back to what it means to have ground truth into a company. Uh, and so uh, I wouldn't say those attempts were wrong, but we hadn't teased apart uh, the DAG or the, I guess, uh, the, the set of dependencies necessary yet for that ecosystem to evolve. And I'd say like that is the core innovation at Tribe is, I think we got lucky and figured out one thing that does seem to be central to all these efforts, uh, which is why we're focused on that specifically now, uh, as opposed to spreading uh, ex- extremely wide uh, and instead using partners to augment those other parts by empowering them to do what they do best with what we feel is the backbone of that. Totally. I, I want to talk about sort of the inner workings of, of firm building because you guys are doing a lot of sort of interesting and, and, and different things around you know, team composition for, for, uh, for one and incentive alignment. Why don't you talk about uh, how you think about that internally? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the answer is we have no preconceived notions about what may or may not work. 
I think we have a healthy respect for the past and how things have been structured, but we use that as a means for, for understanding the constraints, why those decisions are made. And then we clear the slate. I mean, this is a, this is a huge, I think, call out to sort of Arjun Sethi, John and Sue, and Ted Maidenberg, the co-founding partners at Tribe. Um, they were incredibly open about the way in which they even brought us on, right, as product uh, folks and engineers. We essentially said, you know, we don't know what form these incentives are going to take, but we will make sure that they are fair. Uh, and we will align them with this idea that a material amount of the value will likely come from focusing on engineering and product across these few key points, some of which we've discussed today. Uh, and uh, I think it's pretty hard to have a reset of culture like that in an existing firm. I think there are strategies for doing so. Right. We often built strike teams in our other companies. Uh, you have smaller pods that have more autonomy and the ability to set incentives and things like that. And so really, that, that's how we describe ourselves and think of ourselves. Right? We are flexible, uh, not only about the products we build, but all the way down to the responsibilities we have and the way in which we actually compensate people uh, for those things. Uh, and so uh, you know, for each new hire that we bring on, uh, we have a process where we re-examine that entire stack. We think, hey, this person's coming on. We want them to have a compounding effect on everything that we do. What is the right way to structure you know, salary, carry, uh, responsibility, uh, such that they are more than enabled to think freely, to feel empowered, uh, and, ne- and, uh, and actually have the tools necessary uh, to make some of these hard calls, going back to the verticalization that Jake talked about. Yeah, I think I think on top of that, there's this pervi- uh, pervasive belief at Tribe that this compounding is in the long run, which is the way compounding works, is in the long run going to be the stuff that matters the most. And then how do you make that, how do you basically increase the compounding rate as much as possible? And how can you use team composition and, composi- and compensation to achieve that? Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of ways it looks, you know, we kind of look like a startup where, you know, there's a heavily strategic aspect where, you know, you might have like, a, you know, uh, somebody form the company, but allocate a meaningful amount of the ownership to people on the product and engineering teams. You know, don't get, don't get me wrong. We're definitely an investment firm, but, uh, you know, there is that, there is that way of thinking. And, you know, that, that comes through to how uh, the initial team was put together and, and how we're continuing to build it out that way where, you know, you don't have to be somebody bringing in a bunch of deals or bringing in a huge amount of AUM to be somebody who's compensated equivalently, so long as you're having a compound effect. And I think that, you know, the the tricky thing is you can't really measure that stuff. Uh, And it's really hard. And uh, I think that there's definitely, um, and from that perspective, there's a kind of a bet that this is what we're betting on. We don't really know yet, so we're going to, you know, maybe speculate a little, and we think this is going to work. And I think it's going to take a little time for us to be really sure, but that's kind of where it's coming from. Yeah, and and uh, I think all the the end result is you have individuals in the firm who are empowered and freed to rethink the way things should be. Right, going back to the example of an incumbent firm where you bring in product and engineering, it actually doesn't even need to be product and engineering. It could be a brand, uh, you know, brand expert could be somebody who's an advisor to a certain sector of companies. When you have uh, existing momentum, an existing way in which you do things, and there isn't a structure in place to help people challenge that, massage it, iterate through it, 
um, what you end up getting is, uh, you know, parts of the organization that are beholden to that existing structure. And you will continue to build on top of that structure. And there's a natural evolution to that. So the question for us is, you know, it's not really about having a natural evolution per se. It's about building as much value as possible. So how can we challenge these assumptions when necessary internally and let people do so in the most fluid and quick way as possible? Uh, and so, uh, you know, Jake said, we, we incentivize people who don't necessarily touch some parts of these organizations, but we actually have a fair amount of crossover even amongst that, uh, right? Uh, and what that allows us to do is apply those same product and engineering methodologies, not only to diligence, which we spoke about, but also to the way in which we, uh, for example, help our LPs, uh, the way in which we help our companies, uh, et cetera. Uh, and it's all the same, uh, you know, it's, it, it can all be attributed back to the way in which we structure those teams, the way in which we uh, divide those responsibilities and share those responsibilities. Totally. Can you, why don't you talk a little bit about how you think about engineering versus investment team cadence, or even just, you know, focus across from you know, sourcing versus diligence versus management versus operations? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is a question that I got from uh, somebody who was running a, a larger hedge fund uh, who uh, wanted to understand, look, like I'm trying to build an engineering team here that's going to be helping us. Uh, but I also want to focus on my investment activities. So how do I balance these two things uh, in my firm? Uh, and, and you know, the, the answer to that is zero to one product development is non-trivial. takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, and if you really want to gain the most bang for your buck, you want to merge the two together so that you're, again, focusing on one thing that helps you do both. If there's one question that, that I think we ask consistently, it's, uh, you know, what are the key few things that we can focus on that allow us to accomplish all the things that we wanted to? Because there's so much service area. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like, like, I guess product people are lazy inherently, but really lazy is another word for just being focused and efficient. And so the, the answer that I give them is, look, like, how do you, how would you merge those two so that you can then iterate faster and more effectively and spend one hour doing both? Uh, and the answer to us uh, has been, again, what Jake alluded to, Jake's in there assessing that investment and acting as the sponsor for the deal while running the R&D necessary to make our modules fit that and provide better insights, right? And so there's no wasted work there. There's no division of labor. Focusing on one thing doesn't help one thing more than the other. Uh, and uh, I think you know, that is one strategy. If that's not possible, then I think the answer is you bias towards one and you partner or buy on the other side. Right? And uh, we've found a fair amount of success with other, others who have a specific forte outside of engineering where we're able to augment that with some sort of output. For example, the eight ball. Uh, and then we have a conversation and talk about that. But I'd say, you know, if you aren't able to find that common medium that empowers both, it's extremely challenging to do both. Just because we're human, we have limited time and resources. I think there's also, I, I guess I, I'm not 100% sure of the, the context, but um, you know, what, is there a clear um, problem that you're solving right now with engineering? Like why, why engineering, why now? But you know, just going back to how we think about it, I love the way that Alice used the word lazy because in some ways, being lazy is the best thing for us because if we're lazy, then we're forced to solve the problem. I think that a lot of our um, internal innovation actually comes from this place of 
how do I solve this problem once so I never have to solve it again? And how does, in, in such a way that that pertains to making our investment decisions and portfolio management better. So, you know, I think, I think that's, a, that's definitely in the spirit of what we do. Um, it's in the iteration loop, that's, in my eyes, one of the biggest drivers. Yeah, I think, the, I think the funny part is every investor knows this internally. In fact, this is the basis for many investments, right? The, the idea that you can invest a dollar and get compounding returns on that, right? Get more, more for your dollar than you put in. Uh, and so why not have that same philosophy across everything you do? I mean, I think that's just the greater point here is, uh, you know, we as an industry have existed for a very long time and there have been many, uh, many innovations in that respect. But, you know, these things come in arcs. And I think for us, at least, um, what that meant was, hey, there's an opportunity here to rethink what it means to build a verticalized venture firm based around product and engineering uh, and to rethink the way our personnel do this because we have had the same question that everybody else has, which is, how do I use data? When really the, the question we were supposed to be asking is, you know, how do we compress and focus the efforts we do into a few things, data as a wedge into that, that allow us to provide a materially higher amount of value than we were able to before and to build our product I, market fit within Yeah, I, th I think there's a piece here of, of this getting smarter over time. And, um, and you know, when you have... Uh, a product in market, and uh, the you know you can iterate on that product and improve it. I think that's a, a lot of what we do, and uh, and the one of the ways that flows through is 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 through what we were discussing. But one thing I think is really important that we actually haven't really uh, gotten to, which is you know we talked a lot about products and we talked a lot uh, about how we think about products and the and, and how we invest. But one of the things is behind a lot of these products are concepts and frameworks, which are a little disparate from the product itself. But, you know, there is kind of like um, this, this other layer of how, how do we build our understanding and build our theses? And then there, there might be a stage of translating that into a product or a system. But uh, that, that's certainly a really important, important uh, part of our iteration loop. Uh, that, you know, is, is a little separate from product. And, and we're not just, you know, we don't just build products. There's a lot of this other type of knowledge building happening on the side. Why don't you talk a little bit about how you interface with, with partner firms and, uh, and other companies? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this goes back to that dependency graph of, you know, what people inevitably need in order to, uh, in order to do what they do best. Actually, we can we can talk about two examples of this portfolio companies uh, as well as other partners who are also investing. I think they're actually fairly similar. Um, one of the uh, one of the challenges that uh, you know that I've had as an operator historically in, in my board meetings and things is again, oftentimes uh, you know what you need is not only that strategic help at the high level, but sort of that air cover when it comes to truly understanding your business and finding the potential within that, right? The frameworks that Jake talked about. But in order to do that, uh, your board members, everybody around the table that you bring, they need to be armed with an understanding of your company so that they can actually help you with those things. And that's non-trivial. Um, in fact, it's non-trivial because half the time, you don't actually know how to do that for yourself, especially in the earlier stages. Uh, and so uh, I think, uh, what we do, uh, and this is why entrepreneurs like to work with us, is we have a very quick and precise way of getting to that truth 
Uh, and even within our board meetings, right, we're able to run these things quarterly, monthly, uh, very easily. And we can say, look, like this is how we interpret the ground truth that is your company. I'm happy to go to a dinner and explain uh, how you function to a depth that other people around the table uh, around the table can use in order to help you. And that's the way in which uh, we provide value is setting that ground level that everybody can use to help you. Uh, and so, you know, as Jake said, we share our research back when we diligence companies. And even at that point, you know, these companies are able to use that to explain their companies to other investors, to other strategic partners. And those guys are able to onboard onto what it means to interface with that company that much faster and then provide their value in. It's the same thing with LPs, uh, as well as other partners in the space. By just having ground truth about a company, whether that's from us or somebody else, they are able to then spend their time right, focusing on what they do best. Maybe it's introductions to people in a region uh, because they understand the business. They're able to spend the time to do that uh, because they aren't spending two, three, four, five weeks taking you know, half a million to tens of millions of rows of data and having their analysts or principal run tables. They're able to skip all that and trust in the ground truth, the medical chart, uh, and then provide that value. Uh, and so I think that is sort of what we mean by what does it mean to provide a sort of backbone, a core atomic value to an ecosystem. Uh, to us, that's that core visibility into how a company functions, uh, and it helps across the board with everybody that sits around the table uh, of a company. You know, one, one of the big philosophies at, at Tribe is, is end of one companies. Maybe you know, gearing towards closing here, you can unpack a little bit how you think about that, how you measure that or how you get comfortable there. Um, and then also on, you know, how you think about building an N plus one, N of one venture firm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously like we love our outliers, our N of one companies as we describe them. Uh, and the concept is, is really simple, right? Every, every once in a while you will have a firm uh, that, or a company uh, that happens to be in the right time, the right place, the right product, uh, uh, such that they are able to collect what we call an atomic unit. What do I mean by atomic unit? An atomic unit is this raw resource that for whatever reason, when captured, ends up powering an entire ecosystem. So the canonical example we give is Carta, for example. Right? Uh, Carta is collecting equity. Uh, on top of that, you get an ecosystem of uh, investors, shareholders, companies that can all use value out of this. You get the ability to set up uh, places to trade these things, etc. So you can see an ecosystem evolving around this. Not, not every company is that lucky, right? Oftentimes you'll find product market fit, but you won't necessarily have that type of outcome because there's a local maximum to what you can build using that as the fuel for anything else. So when we talk about N of one companies, we're talking about these category defining companies that essentially found one of these resources at the right time and was able to build not only their own product suite, but an ecosystem of other companies on top of that. Just to add an example to that, because Carta is a little, obviously an incredibly successful company. It, it, is it a Google, right? It's a good question. So, you know, a good example is also like Facebook, for example, where you would say Facebook is an end of one company because they, they captured the atomic unit of what we could say photo or media. And around that unit, they, you know, built the world's largest social network and the entire, you know, advertising and all sorts of other industries and consumer interaction refactored around 
that type of approach. And it was Facebook capturing the unit, identifying that the value is in the connections, and then kind of dialing into that, that built the company that they are today. So that's like if you were to fast forward down the line, what happens to an end of one company? That I think Facebook is a good example of kind of the what happens in the future. And, and I think you know the way we think about it is Carta is a good example of a company uh, undergoing that transformation. That's right. And, and so when we talk about building an end of one firm uh, and, uh, you know, what we're really talking about is uh, is a category defining firm that ends up interfacing with the rest of the ecosystem and empowering it. Right. The, whole, the point here isn't to push everybody out. The point here is to multiply the market, multiply the value being generated by being the center of it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is think about one, investments that we can make where the company will inevitably, hopefully, become that center of the universe and, uh, and make those markets that much larger, essentially market creators. But internally, we also think about that for ourselves. What are the few key things we can do to help the entire venture ecosystem, as well as the adjacent players, both companies as well as investors, such that we continue to have these compounding effects and we continue to elevate the things that everybody else does. Uh, and so, uh, you know, data is one wedge into that. And right now, uh, you know, our atomic unit is visibility in these companies. And what that's given rise to, right, are these frameworks around N of 1. Uh, the ability to partner with companies and firms that have strong networks that want to introduce those networks into our combined network of companies. Like, that's the type of collaboration that we want to build. Uh, and we are we are singularly focused on sort of this core eight ball all spark as well as the adjacent products on top of it as a a wedge in to explore what it might mean to build an end of one firm around that specific concept. Yeah, give more examples of of you know Facebook is easy to see, Carta is easier to see, like of investments you make and how you think about the end of one behind them. We have a co investment in Muse. I'm curious what you think the end of one of, of that uh, could could or, sorry the atomic unit could be or yeah, any of the other sort of recent investments? Yeah, absolutely. I think Muse is an interesting one. You know, uh, for, for those that don't know, Muse is, is an incredibly expressive way uh, to not only message, but sort of generate content as a whole. Uh, and I think there's sort of this prevailing arc. Uh, actually, a great example of this is GeoCities back in the day. I'm sure everybody, uh, you know, remembers that. Uh, I think there was a huge sort of arc of creativity that came with the emergence of the internet, right? Things are much less uniform back then. Uh, and over time, you know, you see sort of that decentralization move to centralization, right? Uh, activity getting concentrated on places like Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, creativity with constraints. And I think what you're seeing in sort of earlier generations uh, is this desire to expand past that and to build a sense of agency, a sense of identity. Uh, and so uh, in the same way that these networks historically have been generational, you know, our bet here is uh, that there is a space and place for collecting this atomic unit that is the current creativity within this generation right? and how information is transferred with that energy in mind. And I think it is inevitable that that'll centralize over time become more constraint oriented uh, but I think we're at the potentially at the beginning of a new arc and that's why you know I think Muse is is obviously very early but it is, is incredibly incoming in that respect 
I think the other one that's that's uh, that's interesting to talk about is this company called Bolt. Uh, you know, at its surface, it's a checkout experience. But again, like going back to the end of one concept of finding the right wedge at the right time and collecting something that's valuable, they they uh, fit all that criteria. Uh, they're a little earlier, but essentially what they found uh, is if you look again at sort of these centralization versus decentralization arcs, you look within e-commerce, what you have is you know this great centralization of certain types of purchasing into Amazon in the head, uh, a centralized solution servicing SMBs at the tail and torso, at Shopify and some of these other services. And then you have this entire middle tier who has realized that they don't want to be swallowed by Amazon. You know, these are brands, family of brands that they want to continue, I guess what you would describe as the spirit of entrepreneurship. This is the same thing that those kids are feeling about Facebook and Instagram, right? The ability to stand out, have your own agency, have your own identity. And they're wondering, hey, what am I going to do about this impending centralization across the board? I want to remain decentralized uh, and uh, you know, self-sufficient. And so what you have is this entire decentralized ecosystem of things servicing e-commerce. And the end impact of this is incredible integration complexity when it comes to integrating all these things together. Um, I, you know, I tell a lot of people this. I, uh, yeah, I ran product for this residential contractor platform. At the time, I think we had something like five, 600,000 contractors across North America. And we're trying to deploy payments uh, into, uh, into that, uh, that ecosystem. Uh, and it took us on the order of six to nine months just to deploy a solution in. Uh, not to mention, we didn't even get to the point where we were normalizing data from all those purchases. So what Bolt's done is provided a checkout layer, right? But they've also been very smart. They've realized, hey, there's this entire ecosystem of things that just don't play nicely together, but are ultimately necessary for helping the torso uh, essentially preserve their agency, preserve their decentralization against sort of this centralized threat. Uh, and they've provided middleware that helps everything connect in beautifully. That, that really impressed us because essentially the future that Bolt can have is, you know, they hit at the right time when there's an absolute need for these things. What they end up doing is becoming potentially the backbone for the torso of e-commerce because they're able to connect and elevate all these companies uh, in the space that are having challenges sort of integrating with each other into a cohesive uh, solution within each of these brands. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that's the way in which uh, I guess we are, I guess this is a testament to our eight ball and some of the focus on making the earlier parts faster, the product market fit and engaging with that. Because we're able to do that quickly, we're able to you know spend our time thinking about some of these frameworks on top of that that we layer on top. And the hope here is you know people are able to do the same when they have ground truth in their company uh, in the way yeah, I, in which they form their thesis. I think one thing to add about N of one outcomes is that it's one of these things where after it happens, everyone's like, of course, you know. But before it happens, there's, it's, it's very hard to see. You know, you can look at signals in kind of product market fit. Like, for example, you know, I, guess, I guess we're talking about Bolt. So, for example, with Bolt, there was a ton of growth at a TPV level that we didn't really see uh, maybe in some other payments companies that we had looked at. So it seemed a little weird, a little different. And we kind of put together a thesis for what it was, but we didn't really see that aspect that Alex described. And I, I remember that, Ryan always had that perspective. And now, like, as things have developed, you can kind of start to see that materialize. You know, I think um, uh, around, around N of 1, it's, it's really tricky because 
you know, we try to come up with a framework to say, okay, there are atomic units of value. And if you follow this line of thinking, you should be able to identify them. Uh, even if you have product engagement data, you can see special things happen and there isn't an end of one outcome because you hit a ceiling or there's not a future inflection point that leads to acceleration or something. So, you know, it's really tricky and, um, and they're very, very rare. Uh, an end of one company, you know, happens once in a while, almost by def definition, once every maybe like decade or so. And so, you know, that, that's kind of the thing you're up against. It's not, it's, a, it's not something that you can say, oh, I found it, I can see it. It's really, really tricky. And even when you have all the ingredients, you don't really know. And, and, um, and, and that's, just, that's just an important, important thing that you can't, can't be overlooked. <laughs> that's right. And so, and so the trick here is, uh, you know, we aren't Sears. We, we don't know. Right. But what we can do is increase the probability that we're right. Uh, and the way in which we do that is at least understanding whether there's early product market fit, because I can tell you for sure, if you don't have that at some point, then the chances of you leveraging whatever energy you have to build those outcomes is no. Right now, there are instances like Slack where, you know, you, you don't have product market fit with your original product, but then you suddenly find it. But that prerequisite is always there. And that is you have sort of this uncanny energy that is then transferred into sort of a greater outcome. And so a lot of our, you know, a lot of our efforts are around at least filtering out in that respect. And that's why, you know, we like doing that versus say sourcing or whatever else, because ultimately sourcing doesn't give you as deep a sense for that specific checkbox. And we think that specific checkbox just happens to be very valuable for a lot of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think as that matures, there'll be other things we can build on top of it that help us more accurately identify which companies are on their way to end of one. But for now, uh, I think the thesis here is if we can do that well and we can increase our chances and we can spend more time thinking about these outcomes and helping others think about these outcomes on top. Yeah, that, that's a perfect place to, to, to wrap, guys. Uh, Alex, Jake, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. You know, we highly recommend entrepreneurs and, and other investors work with work with Tribe. We certainly do uh, and have a, you know, a, a co-investment looking forward to more. Uh, Alex, Jake, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. And any more plugs? Where, where can they learn more, read more about, about your work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you can definitely reach out to us. Uh, my, my email is alex at tribecap.co uh, and then Jake's is jake at tribecap.co. You can also visit us at our website at tribecap.com. Awesome. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.